Welcome to the Let's Get Vulnerable podcast with me, your host, Dr. Morgan Anderson, clinical psychologist, relationship coach, love expert, creator of the ESL relationship method and athletic wear connoisseur. My mission is to help you raise your self-worth, have great relationships and step confidently into the next level of your life. Each week, two episodes will air featuring expert advice, live coaching, and tips showing you exactly how to improve your life and attract great relationships. You deserve to feel empowered, secure, and loved. So buckle up and let's get vulnerable. Okay, y'all, before we get started, I promised myself I wouldn't forget to share with you some really important news. I have officially opened the opportunity to work with me in the eight-week ESL relationship program I know it's the holidays coming up and you don't want to spend another holiday season alone and worried that you'll be alone forever. You don't want to go through the holidays again and come up on January 1 without taking control of your life and working on your relationships. So that's why I've officially opened up the opportunity to work with me. There's a limited amount of spots Once the spots are gone, they're gone. So if you're really, truly serious about getting off the dating roller coaster, you're tired of all the dating games, and you are ready to attract that healthy, great relationship, this program is for you. If you're tired of picking the wrong guy, picking people who won't commit, picking people who you feel you can't commit to, If you're tired of all that wasted energy and you want to have a relationship that lasts, then this program is for you. So make sure you don't wait. Go to the link in my Instagram bio. It's Instagram at Dr. Morgan Coaching and click the apply now button. Go do that. Take the action now that your future self will thank you for. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the Let's Get Vulnerable podcast. We have an incredible guest with us today, Jordan Power. Hello, Jordan. I believe you call me incredible. Thank you. I'm going to read an intro real quick, just to let you all know who Jordan is. Jordan is a writer and comedian who has sold out live shows across North America He's the former co-host of Shame on You, a podcast that was downloaded millions of times in over 120 countries. And guess what? On November 13th, so really soon here, he is launching his new podcast, Unmentionable. And you can find that anywhere. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be anywhere podcasts are aired. And make sure that you are following him at Comedy on Instagram. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to my studio. I look like <laughs> I'm in a cave right now. I wish that our podcast listeners could see your studio. It's amazing. I was telling Jordan before our show that I have background envy. He has these amazing neon lights with unmentionable. You're going to get one. It'll look great I- on that wall behind you. Actually. <laughs> 
I'm going to get one. It's going to say, let's get vulnerable. I can't wait. And it'll be in, in turquoise. I can already see it. Yeah. <laughs> so Jordan, wow. You have an incredible story. You've connected with so many people. You're, you're putting great content and work out there. And you are kind of the definition of let's get vulnerable, right? Like that's the name of the show. And I feel like you are someone who is incredibly vulnerable. Almost too much. Truly to the detriment of my personal life. Yes, but I am though. Mm. I mean, I, someone was asking me about, I never really been to like the branding thing. Cause I, I try to be authentic and just myself, but someone said, I had this manager person was like, what is your brand? And it's really just like, uh, I guess I just talk about my life. I think that's kind of how I got started in all this was just exploring my life. Um, and I've always been that kid when I was five years old, I'd just be the kid at the party that they'd get to say the inappropriate things. And I think that's where my personality was developed because I was just the clown. And then my whole life, I just sort of let it fly. Um, which when you're really honest, comes with a lot of uh, hate as well. Wow. Yeah. And there's so much power in that, right? Like I know you talk about being able to live a shameless existence by telling the truth. Can you talk a little bit more about how that has applied to your life and what it has meant to you to be so authentic? I think the shame lives in silence, right? Um, mm -hmm. Everything. Um, and so much of when people will, like I get a lot of times when I'm doing comedy, people will say, uh, you're, you're vulgar. Um, and I, I find that to be a interesting word because it's like, I just sort of, I'm not, I don't think I'm intentionally vulgar, but I'm also just honest. So in terms of mm -hmm. exploring anything like sexuality or any topic, um, so that I think w when we started our initial podcast, shame on you, the goal was how do we get to this place where we have eradicated the residual gay shame we have about being gay. Um, and, and I don't think many people realize that like when you're a gay person, you, you'll hear a lot of times, oh, you can get married and, uh, you know, things are a lot better now. Of course they're better. That's undeniable. But I think people don't understand what lives on and how bad it still is. And I always kind of say it like this, I say, if it's so great, then how come in Toronto, one of the most gay friendly places in the world, um, I know tons of 45 year old men who haven't come out. Um, I can go on Grinder. I can see thousands of blank profiles, discreet, closeted. Um, so they're picking up social signals from the world that says there's something still wrong with them and that it's not safe right. or a good idea to come out. And so my best friend and I who did this, the show, it was kind of our goal was how do we get to this place of zero gay shame? Well, let's take everything that we're, we still kind of feel icky about talking about um, yeah. and let's put it all out there. And so that's what we did. We just we just talked, we, we interviewed people we had sex with, but then we also got a little more res responsible. We interviewed people, a gay priest, uh, meth is a big problem in the gay community that people deal with their shame with. So we dealt, we dealt with that. And then eventually a lot of people that came up to me, it was, it was kind of like, I wish I was as bold. I wish I was out. I wish I was as honest as you. And I always just kind of say, well, you could be, but you're just, you have a fear of what could happen. Wow. That is so powerful, right? 
And oh my gosh, one of the things that you just said that grabbed my attention was realizing that substance use a lot of times is a, is a bandaid for shame, right? It's kind of a numbing thing that we do. Um, and it's weird. It's like, there's always that stereotype of, oh, the gay community uses a lot of drugs, et cetera. But what part of that is about just coping in the world, right? And this like, you you get in this state of hypervigilance, right? Because when you're young, you're taught that there's something wrong with you, but you're also taught that there's all these threats around you, that yeah. it's going to be awkward when you go to the doctors, that you could be physically attacked, that you could be ostracized in any way from society. And so essentially what you do is you sort of, you soothe like we all do, right? Yes. And I just, when I, when I started coming to Toronto when I was like 23 and I started going to gay parties, I was shocked by the amount of substance abuse. Um, it was on a level that just wasn't even proportional to the general population, meaning you would go to a party and everyone would be blackout drunk, everyone would be on drugs, um, and it was sad in a way. Um, yeah. And as I explored that more, I was just like, oh, this is a group in pain. And it doesn't just stop there. I mean, it, what would happen is I would date these guys and then I'd always, my friend and I call it dating it while damaged. And you always find the moment when, you know, you think you meet someone great and you find the moment when yeah. there's pain there and the whole thing blows up in your face. Um, and and so that's something that with the show, we had, you know, we had thousands of people message us, uh, people divorced. They uh, came out because of the podcast. They, wow. Yeah. And so I guess we just inspired people to just put it out there. If we could put it out there, then they could put it out there even a bit. I love that. I think, I mean, it's so powerful to model that and say, hey, look at everything we're talking about, right? You give people you're kind of like loaning them the bravery to do what they need to do in their life. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You go, you go a, a mile and they go a foot. Yeah, exactly. I love that so much. What about for you in terms of your own coming out and coming to terms with your identity? Yeah. So um, I wrote a lot. So I wrote this book in the summer called Famous Anus. Great title. If I do say that something. is a great title. It's very <laughs> attention getting. Very. And the cover is an anus in a tuxedo. And then Ooh. there's a that says famous anus. And it's a comedy book. So if you're reading it, it you're reading it and you're, you're thinking like, oh, I mean, the title gives it away. But there's a lot of ex- exploration of the pain in there and, and kind mm. of the journey of, of the young gay guy. And my childhood, I was, I was plagued by bullying. Um, mm. I still suffer from a really paralyzing anxiety at times, hypervigilance, because I think the whole time that my brain was developing, I was getting bullied. I was getting teased. My parents used to come to the school and have to deal with the problem is what they would call it. Um, not not in that they were not accepting, but just that the teachers would call it that. And it really meant I had a list and people would come after me. Um, so when you grow up, and that happens, you, you're constantly distrustful of people. You're constantly looking for threats. You're constantly blowing up. You're constantly seeing everyone as an enemy and, and you really see people in a really reductive way instead of the complex people that they are. And so, um, I saw the world in really black and white and, um, the silver lining was that I became outspoken and uh, independent, but the problem was that I explored my book is, you know, from age 23, I'd say to 33, my dating life was nothing short of a disaster, Dr. Morgan. <laughs> well, we have that in common. 
Yeah. <laughs> one, one dumpster fire, though. one dumpster oh. fire after another, really. Yeah. And it, was, <laughs> and it was after therapy, I realized it was me mimicking the uh, characteristics of my primary caretaker. So, Wow. My dad, like really, really true textbook daddy issues. Not in the sense that I was like dating older guys or anything, but it was just like I was addicted to chaos. Um, I was addicted to the push-pull kind of love. Yeah. Uh, and then I see anyone who brought grounded me in normalcy, I would see them as boring. Ooh. Familiar? <laughs> you are talking about... I mean, there's so much I can say about that. Um, it, you could look at this as the anxious avoidant trap where you have someone who's anxiously attached and avoidantly attached. And there's that, that push pull um, that feels like you have no control over it. And then also that association of chaos and roller coaster as love, right? And if anything is secure, reliable, and predictable, then that's boring. Like, I don't want to you know, get involved in that. Yeah. And the sickness of, you know, cause a lot of my book is me, you know, sleeping with my boss, uh, you know, mm. just behaviors that were just insane, but it's also the sickness of a comedian. Right. Because that was how I was, I was taught my whole life is how I get love. That's, I mean, that's still how I get love. Um, so I would see people as entertainment and it was like my dates mm. were just a book being written, uh, it was a sideshow. It was like I was powerless. I was floating above my body, just trying to entertain my friends because I thought that that was my role in society. And it is still my role in society now as a comedian. And I do do that. But I think with my new show, I just really want to get away from um, self-deprecation and kind of try and move outward in the comedy. I really appreciate you talking about this because I think people feel that way. Like even just that phrase you said, if I was floating outside of my body and like watching it happen, being caught in that chaos and that cycle and feeling like you couldn't stop it. Right. Or you had no control over it. And if that was what love was to you, then, you know, love is our most important thing as humans. We're going to do whatever we have to do mm -hmm. to keep getting it. Um, what was that moment for you? And maybe it was a series of moments, but when did you finally go, okay, this chaos has to stop. I can no longer be in relationships that are, you know, so chaotic. How did you come to that realization? Um, so I think the problem when we were doing the show and, and also my desire to not do that show anymore and why it ended, um, partially because our friendship fell apart, because, partially because of the show, but other reasons. But it's also that when you, when you do those kind of shows, you mine your personal life for content. And yeah. Uh, the dating and the sex podcast. I mean, uh, all those girls in New York, I, I listened to a bunch of them, but um, it's no secret that all six of them are single. And there's a reason for that. And it's people don't trust you and they don't want to uh, be entertainment. Um, and I think I got to a place where um, I, I think love is very rare and I have a lot of, um, you know, I'm a secretly a romantic at heart. So I sort of got to the point where I thought, well, if I'm going to bring someone into the sideshow, um, uh, is it really like, is it really a far stretch to think that maybe they wouldn't want to be an entertainment source <laughs> or that they wouldn't want to live it publicly? And it was like, no one trusted me. Um, and, and for good reasons. I mean, we literally would go on dates and talk about it on the podcast and it's addictive content. But uh, if it's yeah. there's no chaos, you don't get downloads. 
And so that's just what it became. It's just like you're like manufacturing chaos in a way because Ooh. you're thinking, oh, well, this is uh, I'm getting love. I'm getting attention. This is what I wanted my whole life. I'm making money. Um, but that is tethered to you uh, acting like a hot mess. <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm hmm. So important for you to realize that and realize, I think to me, this also connects to self-worth, right? Yeah. Like being able to realize, Hey, I am worthy of a healthy relationship that is not, you know, a relationship that's designed to get me more people listening or, you know, to move my career forward. I'm, I'm just worthy as myself, you know, just as a human of healthy love. Right. And I think it, the, not to spoil my book, but um, the book is me in chaos and acting like a comedian, acting like a monkey. And then part of, as I grow up and the books in chronological order, you just coming to this place where you realize that um, you have a lot more to offer the world than to be funny, that you are a lot more of a person, yeah. a monkey or a clown. And yeah. so um, that I think is the part for me. And, and there's also the, the other thing is I think it's just naturally happens where you just sort of desire a level of peace and the chaos mm -hmm. gets old and the destruction gets old. I mean, you hear with a lot of addicts, right? They kind of hit their point where they're like, yeah, this isn't fun anymore. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So now I, I look for different qualities in, in men and I think what I, I, I see the chaos now and I can recognize that and I just go, yeah, this I'm 34. This is not going to be fun. Like I just don't, I don't even feel that almost like a drug. It was like a drug. It was it like was a, a drug, dopamine yeah. hit with men. And, uh, and yes. so I, I vow with the new show is just, it's a different kind of show. It's a broader kind of show. It's not going to be just a gay podcast. It's going to be more in the vein of, you know, like a Howard Stern, a Rogan kind of show. I just kind of vowed that it, I would not talk about my sex life on the show. Um, the past is still uh, on the table, but uh, I kind of, yeah. quickly announcing that on the show. Like I'm, I don't think that's going to be what Jordan, is. you are affirming how I have done my podcast because I mean, I knew that there'd be part of me that would want to talk about my current personal life, but my audience has no idea about my current dating life. I'm sure they would love to know, but yeah. I won't, I won't go yeah. there. I won't. Yeah. It's worth it. It's really not worth it because it's like, you'll just end up alone. I mean, yeah. it's like, kind of like, and it's funny because I was dating this guy in the summer and his friends were fans of mine, like listen to my show. And I then go the opposite way. Like no one knew his name. No one saw his photo. Yeah. Other route because it kind of like Taylor Swift did with her relationship, you know, yes. uh, where like, she's just like, I used my mind, my personal life for content. And then everyone got addicted to that. Yeah. You know, that's her fault too. But then also she's saying with this guy, you know, she doesn't even get, you know, talk about him. You never, you know, I mean, you right. know, who he is, but, but that I think that's a, just a healthier way. It's yeah. Or I'm not. I mean, I'm not 25 anymore. Yeah. Boundaries, right? Like you're yeah. very clear with your boundaries. Yes. Boundaries are hot. I always tell people. Like mm -hmm. we want to date people with boundaries. That's that's what keeps a healthy relationship going. So good yeah. for you. Good for you to get to that place. Um, I know for me, like one of my old patterns was unavailable. Mm. And, the more unavailable, the better. Like I actually, I've never said this before, but I'll, I'll share it with you. Um, I dated my high school English teacher. Oof. 
a year after high school, mind you. So I was out of, he was no longer my teacher, but I had had this romance. And of course he was older and he was in that unavailable position of power. And that was what I used to go for. Yeah. It's fun. All the married men. Oh man. The strings that I didn't know were married, but my subconscious would pick them, right? Like my attachment, my anxious attachment style would pick unavailable men, even if I didn't know they were unavailable. So it's just fascinating how those patterns can just take over your life. And you don't even, until you're conscious of it, until you're like thinking about it. And, and I think, especially when you're young, you don't even realize it. I didn't yeah. really realize it until I went to therapy. And then I was just like, oh, because you're right. I, would, I was like you, I would date. I was in a relationship with a guy to a boyfriend. Yeah. Like but at the time, I'm like, this is yeah. hot. It's in- intense. It's secretive. It's sexy. I mean, it is unpredictable. Those- yeah. Yeah, but then it just gets over the hump and then it's hell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crash and burn. Yeah. yeah. What was it like going to therapy for you? And I want to say like, you know, as a gay man, I feel like sometimes it can be hard to find that therapist that really gets you. Yeah. And- the gay friendly. Yeah. It's funny when they, when they, cause I, there's a clinic down in Toronto and it's called, they, they, they tell you they've LGBT friendly doctors. And I just, even the mention of that, it's like, shouldn't they all be LGBT friendly? Like that's the problem, you know? And, and but I do also think that it's warranted because I have gone to many doctors, not my therapist, but I've gone to doctors before and they're just, there's just a tinge of homophobia. You feel it in the way they talk. You can feel it. Yeah. But when I went to this therapist, I actually didn't seek out an LGBT uh, Q therapist. I actually uh, just sought out someone who was, um, who knew their shit. Uh, she was a psychoanalyst plus a psychotherapist, very, very expensive. Um, and, uh, in a really like ritzy part of Toronto. And I just kind of got lucky. I'd already been to four therapists before and mm-hmm. just, it, it, it didn't click. And I think she just, uh, I have an imperious personality and she just called me out first, first session. And then I was like, I'm in love <laughs> because I respected <laughs> her immediately. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just kind of let my guard down after that. Amazing. Yeah, it definitely, people don't realize that sometimes it takes a while to find that right fit, whether it's a therapist or a coach or a mentor, but you have to be willing to kind of go through some different relationships before you get to that one that fits. Yeah. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that you found and, that. And I think... It says my internet connection is unstable. Uh-oh. Um, do I look okay for you? You do, yeah. You're good now. Okay, okay don't worry about it. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah, so I know you said that at one point you found out that your dad was gay. And I felt like that had to have been one of those life-changing moments for you. And I'm curious if you would share with the audience about that. Yeah, I mean, I found so I really crazy story. My dad, um, I actually do it in my stand up. My dad was a because how I deal with everything. Uh, my dad was a gay penis doctor, so he's a urologist. Uh, we didn't know he was gay, but the the joke I do in my stand up is like, you got to do what you love. But <laughs> <laughs> that's like my opener, and people are just like, "Is he serious that his dad?" I'm like, "Yes, it's like not a joke." It's but true I, story. <laughs> I don't know. Jordan, uh, let's soak in. 
Yeah. So my dad was a urologist my whole life. And then around age 23, left the family computer open. Uh, oh. And I found him on a hookup site for gay men, uh, told my mom, and that was the basis for their divorce. Wow. Yeah. So I wonder if that informs a lot of the gay activist stuff I did with the podcast and kind of my book and stuff like right. that. Right. Seeing your dad live in shame. Mm-hmm. All and those think, years. I'm going to be the complete opposite of that. Wow. A lot of us have that drive to be the rebel from our parents. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. So then seeing your parents go through the divorce and do you feel like you were able to navigate that well, or was that really challenging? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, well, what was interesting is I think that was around, so I I was in a relationship for about five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, My book starts essentially at age 23 because I was in a relationship for five years and starting at age 18 uh, and then kind of went on this 10 year journey uh, throughout the book. And I think as around the time at 23 was around the time my parents got divorced. So, um, you know, I just, I, I saw my mom as just a person uh you know we see our we have this grandiose view of our parents our whole lives and i just saw her break down and i saw how she processed everything and fears of mortality mm-hmm. and dying alone and the mm-hmm. unknown um and it forced me to grow up very quickly um i have a very resilient personality very much like her so i think when you're resilient uh, sometimes your competence and resilience can get punished by people. And so they kind of look to who, who will help me get through this. Um, so I was really there for her in that sense, uh, that I, I, because I could kind of stand on my own two feet. And, uh, but then, then I started dating really around 23. It was around that time. So, um, again, addiction to chaos, addiction to people from broken homes. Um, yeah. And, then that actually really started the cycle of the combination of the absent father and the chaotic household. And then, you know, coming to terms with really, I really kind of came out around that time too. Um, and then it was just, yeah, it's just one after another. It's just, I mean, it's funny now in a book. I mean, there is comedy and self-destruction. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you see a lot of people make mm-hmm. careers out of it, but um, I, I really tried to hammer home in my book as sidebars that like, do you yes this is funny but this is also tragic at the same time yeah Mm -hmm. yes i i think about you know freud actually wrote a whole book on humor as a defense mechanism i think it's like 400 pages it's like crazy how long it is but um I always tell people, you know, like humor is my favorite defense mechanism though, like of all of them, right? If you can, if you can use humor, but at some point, if that is the only coping skill that you have, it becomes very detrimental to yourself because then you're also not allowing yourself to sit in your reality, right? Yeah. Same with substances. All and then, of it. Yeah, combine, I would combine substances with that. Um, I actually dated a guy one time and we had, so this is a perfect example, completely emotional, available, closeted, but we had the greatest times together laughing. So we would laugh for hours. We would make jokes. We would make jokes of everything. Um, I was quite good at it because it's like, I have this aptitude for it because that's what I do now. And he was fun. And I was like, I'd say to my friends, I was like, we just have so much fun together. We just laugh, 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 laugh. But what I didn't realize is that like, 
that was the buffer between us to to create this emotional distance and every time we would stop laughing uh and get serious uh he would he would be he couldn't do it um because mm -hmm. he was closeted and it made his life real and it made his sexuality real and you know it's funny because we we always say like i want to have the person that makes me laugh and that's and that's fun and i i like frivolity and i like you know childlike newness and that approach to life but i think it's also to remember like you mentioned when the laughs stop what's there and how long do you need the crutch um and most people don't understand i mean i know a lot of comedians and i'm a comedian myself we are damaged people um there's no way around it i mean if you're good at comedy it's because you worked at surviving so often you use the the mechanism so often that you just became a master at it um and and that's what i really try to explain to people is that like you know i see people come to like open mics really privileged great childhoods all these things and they they can't get the comedy and i almost say to them i'm like be happy i'm like because <laughs> don't have trauma yeah. and I'm so traumatized that I can do this, but like do, I would love a, a nice house and stable relationships and not paralyzing anxiety and all the things that I suffer from, you know, you just want to go up and do this for a night. This is just a calling for me. It's like, I just have to do this. There's nothing around. There's no way around this. Mm. Wow. I think that makes a lot of sense, right? When you have to, you know, flex that coping mechanism over and over, of course you become very talented at it and it's a gift. Um, and I think comedy is such a way to connect with people, right? And like, there are, I'm sure those people who listen to your comedy and even though it's comedy, they take it home and they're able to also work through some of those deeper things. Like, mm -hmm. I think comedy can kind of be a gateway to, but what's really going on. Right. And it's that thing that brings people in that hopefully helps them also take it deeper and do the work that they need to do. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people, you're right. Like what's lost. Cause I know you're a fan of the comedy is, um, in this PC culture, I think a lot of people think a lot of us just want to be able to say really mean, terrible things, racially driven things or whatnot. And that's really not what we're getting at. It's just that the role of comedy is misunderstood by a lot of people. And what it is, is it breaks tensions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had this one joke I did in a stand up and because uh, I, I tend to go darker on the humor a lot because it's just sort of the life I've led that at the dark moments, that's what got me out of the hole. I had this one joke about, I, I, there's a whole setup, but it's essentially about a joke about me having HIV because I'm gay. I, it's something about, you know, my blood type is HIV positive. It's like, it's very funny when I set it up, I promise. But it's what we call a mo, I call it a Moses. It really divides the audience. So you'll see the one odd side of the audience is just in complete horror. And then the other side of the audience is just falling over laughing. Mm -hmm. And I think this group understands that what I'm doing is I'm taking my own fears and yeah. what scares me and I'm just deconstructing them in a way. And I'm finding a way to um, kind of kind of keep a little bit of self-delusion uh, yeah. there, right? And so I think that's the thing people don't understand is the point of the comedy. And Dave Chappelle does this so well when he explores racial issues, trans issues, stuff like that. It's breaking the, the the it's breaking the tension among people, and yeah. you're actually finding a level of commonality uh, with people. And so, I think you'll see a lot of even after COVID. You know, we're all traumatized by this. I think you'll see a lot of 
dark comedy is going to rise. Oh, absolutely. Because it's like, you know, you're going to come into a club and people will be there that, you know, bankrupt, their mom died and stuff like that. And then a comedian will just go up there and make a joke. And then it's just, the, it's the exhale, right? It's that collective the exhale. exhale of like, the collective exhale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited for that. If, if the world comes back. it's a, I mean, it's a gift that you have. And sometimes our, you know, I think a lot of times actually our gifts can come from trauma and from having to grow up really quickly. And, you know, I know I relate to that background as well. And that's why I became a psychologist and that's why I'm a relationship coach and I help people. Um, so I think when you, when you go through that trauma and then you have a gift that comes out of it, it really is a calling. You have no other choice but yeah. to do that thing, right? Yeah, like it's, it's just, it's it. I, I, I said that to someone the other day. I'm like, because, you know, all, all I really want to do is, you know, stand up the, my podcast and then writing, which I actually really, it's probably my best skill. Um, but I said to my friends, I'm like, no, you don't understand. I don't have, my friends are like, what if it fails? What if this? I go, I don't have a choice. Yeah, I just it, it's the only way I can make sense of all the craziness of my life, which I haven't even begun to explore. You know, my my other book's crazy and stuff like that. But there's so many stories in there. There's a story of me making out with my stepbrother, not really it's my, realizing it's my stepbrother. Like <laughs> it's just stuff right now. I'm fighting my my dad's ex-partner who like stole this money from him when he was on his deathbed. I mean, it's just like this stuff is just like I can either wallow in pity or. Or I can just give that little gift to people. I mean, that's what comedy is of a yeah. cake for people. It's just like, so when my friends are going through bad things, they call me and I know I have to be the clown, but that's just what I need to do for them. Right. Yeah. So important. So important. Yeah. And I love the piece. I know this is going back a little bit, but you also talked about, okay, when that role is off, when you're not Jordan, the comedian, and you are, Jordan, who actually wants to show up in a relationship with another human, like being able to find those people that can also meet you there, right? And show up in the hard conversations with you or the not funny conversations. And I imagine that's a way that you can distinguish like who is inner circle. Yeah. Yeah. My friends and I all have the similar humor, but you know, you're right. Like there's another thing is I was dating that guy in the summer. It was just like, he didn't think I was that funny. And it, it kind of hit to, it hit my insecurity because I was like, it's undeniable. Everyone says that I'm funny. Like, it's just, I mean, I'm <laughs> funny doing that, but it also made me like kind of work harder. But then I also had another part of my brain was like, you need to make peace with that because not everyone's going to find you funny and like, you know, but he, mm-hmm. but think about that. This is, this is what you always wanted. You want someone who likes you for not being the clown and you got right. it, but I needed him to, there's still that level of like exchange between two people that with the humor, I mean, you know, when you're dating someone, it's just like, you yeah. kind of find them on that level. And I treat comedy with like, it's a religion. So if I, if I can't meet them, I, it's something I really struggled with. Yeah. It's a value. I mean, yeah, a pers- it's, I would say it's almost a lens for which you view the world, right? Right. And he'd say, oh, you're, you're like darker comedy or more cynical comedy. And I was just like, 
yeah, but that's reflective of all the things you haven't seen. That's reflective of all the privilege you have. That's reflective mm-hmm. of all the normal you got to have is that there's something with people that like dark comedy. When you start to meet them and know them on a deep level, they're deeply compassionate, empathetic people, but they get this uh, kind of stigma of like being like, how could you make a joke about cancer? How could you make a joke about this? And it's like, no, but that's just, we all went through hell. So we love that to survive. Be happy you didn't have to go to hell. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Hmm. So I want to ask you, so I know we talked about kind of having coping skills that aren't always healthy. Since you have, you know, got out of the chaotic relationships and you're moving away from that old podcast and you're, you're basically kind of redesigning your life a bit. Like what are the ways that you cope in a, in a healthy way, you know, like what are the Jordan go-tos now for, for healthy coping? I think for me, I have to, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I'm an alcoholic, but I would say that, um, uh, booze is not a good look on me, especially at this age. Um, physically it puffs, you know, just the physical, whatever. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like be on camera. You gotta do that. But, yeah. um, it, it's, it makes me very ego driven. It makes me very bitter. It makes me very mm. short. Um, whereas weed uh, really makes me compassionate, empathetic, loving, mm. affectionate. Um, you know, I and I really can write excellent comedy. I mean, I almost like I'm scared not to like I'm working on my second book right now and I'm scared to write not on weed because <laughs> it is undeniable how much funnier it makes me. And then that's a little scary, right? Because then you have a good dependence. Yeah. Um, but again, I don't know if it's just one one addiction to the other. Uh, I am an exercise addict and not being able to work out right now is uh, crushing. And then I think, well, what about when you're older and you are, you can't, are you going to, you got to learn to cope. So I, I don't think I can, like I, I, I said, I said to people, you know, the gyms being closed to me, everything else during COVID is like, whatever, but the gyms, yeah. uh, it's just, it's, it crushes me because I, I, I think being a comedian, being darker, me having mental health issues, I explained to my mom that like my baseline is like if I eat really well and exercise and sleep seven, eight hours, um, I that'll bring me to the baseline of the average person in society uh, with regards to depression and anxiety. Like that brings me up to everyone else. So so when I when I fine tune and I'm really methodical and keep myself disciplined, I just get to be like everyone else. So mm. then when you don't do that, it's like I just live down here. And so. Um, that's something that like exercise for me, but exercise is not only a lot of people think it's just like, you want to have a hot body. It's the discipline. Oh it's yeah. The, like overcoming obstacles. There's just so many elements to it that I love. Um, I think the other thing is just, um, and I'm sure you explore this a lot. It's just like getting rid of, it sounds like it's just so cliche, but getting rid of toxic people. I mean, yeah, I have cut out three people out of my life in the past 12 to 16 months as a result of wow. therapy. Wow. Uh, and it was just her kind of illuminating that like, hey, it's not going to get better. They're not going to change. People rarely change. So the yep. question is, is what what is your level of tolerance? And I had someone that I was friends with in the summer who really good friend of mine did something really shitty to me. And I just sort of thought, you know, when we have people in our lives that are spiraling out of control and are a danger to themselves and have all these compulsions, I'm sure you know many people like that. Mm-hmm. Um 
you want to have a level of empathy and you want to help them while while keeping your boundaries up. But I think what happens with so very often with people that are close to you is their chaos begins to spiral into your life. So it's yeah. no longer just uh, yeah, you're in pain. We all know you're in pain. Well, I'll do my best to help you, but that's your life. That's your choices. Um, mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't affect me. And then it's happened to me twice and where people are really close to me, it's just, it, they, their pain spirals and it, it's, you become collateral damage in their pain. And I think that I got to the point with that person where I said, okay, now it's gotten to the point where your pain is now is, is coming into my life and really disrupting it. Um, and mm-hmm. I think for anyone listening, and if that's something you feel, you feel that, you know, you're kind of seeding or they're kind of encroaching on certain areas. Um, there's something very freeing about just saying I'm out until you can somewhat guarantee that that doesn't happen anymore. Wow. I love everything that you shared just now. I, I also, I did no alcohol for 2020, which I know is hilarious, right? I didn't know what was coming, but I, I said, Oh, no alcohol for 2020. And I've stuck to it. Good for um, you. <laughs> and also I used to do personal training and fitness is the way that I have dealt with my own mental health and my own struggles. So I got a Peloton. I I'm one of those people. Like I, I bought weights. I mean, I had to find ways to do it at home because I was going insane. Mm -hmm. Um, so I totally relate a lot with what you're sharing. And then the last piece also, I don't know what it has been about this year, but I also have had to have some people leave my life, you know, through, through boundaries. I always tell people communicate the boundaries, give, the friend, the opportunity to meet the boundaries and respect it. But then if they don't, then you have to get more firm. And if it means you love somebody from a distance, then you have to do that. Right. And it's, it's ultimately for them too, because you cannot feed their behavior or say that it's okay. Right. Like you have to do the tough love. And also I think one more thing I also noticed is like, I agree with everything you said there. And the other thing, the other piece that I noticed of that person is that like you, I kind of, what they'll do is as they're spiraling, they try to pull you into the chaos and the gaslighting. So for example, in that situation, the person said to me, uh, I can't believe you think I would do that. Is that really what you think of me? And my therapy and my tools and kind of knowing my self-worth really popped in and I, and I just stopped it right there. And I, and I put the brakes and I said, Hey, this isn't about me don't, don't try to, you know, pull me into this. Don't try to say my reaction is irrational. Don't yeah. try to pull me into that. Any person in your life that has a good head on their shoulders would say, this is wrong. This isn't about me. This is all about you and your behavior. And, and you kind of see, it's like when they're, when they're, they're, you know, throwing their hands in all directions and they're just kind of spiraling. You just see that they're trying to find a way to not face reality. Yes. Um, Yeah. And so I just was like, because I think you can expend so many hours just trying to play in their games. I've dated people who like make me feel like I'm insane and I, you never get those hours back. That's the reality. You never, yes. Your energy is your most precious resource. Mm -hmm. I always tell people we don't want to water plastic plants, right? Yes. We want to give our energy to relationships that can grow. And a lot of us spend a lot of time watering a plastic plant, hoping that it's just going to turn into something good, but it can't like, that's the capacity that it has. Right. 
And you don't want to squander, you know, you have one life, whatever you believe, but squander so many hours and years. And I think the other thing is, is when you find really good relationships, like the kind I have with my mom and my stepdad, the juxtaposition of those relationships with the incredible relationships, that really illustrates to you the disparity between the two Yeah, um, so much. And so it's like, I feel so good when I'm here and I feel like crap when I'm here. I can't even go to point B because yes. why? And yes. so, and, and and I, and I, and then you also kind of, as you get older, you have to realize people are going to say, Oh, you're too harsh. You're too this. And then you just have to be saying like, Hey, it's my choice. It's my life. Yes. And you move on. And, and you have to make the space for those healthy relationships. If your energy is being stuck in the ones that are spiraling or, you know, not, not reciprocal, then you don't have the space for the healthy relationships. So I always tell people it's better to have empty space that's available for a healthy relationship than to cling on to something that's just taking up the space and draining your energy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I especially think we need more in the media and more to hear from from people like in your industry that like the when we say relationships is everyone's so focused on like love and romantic relationships but so many people don't talk about like colleague relationship friend relationship yes those never get as much like play in the media because we just have rom-coms and you know you're right it's like the other ones can destroy you actually a lot worse and i've seen that happen a lot more um so I, i i think that's the biggest thing is just sort of like when when you feel that pit yeah. It's time to do something about it. Yeah. It's such a good point. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm actually going to do a few episodes on friendships because I've noticed that there is such a gap. People don't talk about friendship. No, I mean, I was in like a nine year best friend. My, like I, I was not in a room. My best friend, Brad, who I did Shame on You with, we were on that podcast and we were friends for nine years. And I kind of talked about it in my book, but like, when we were doing that show, our friendship was also declining for, for reasons related to the show, but also some things that were going on in his life. And and it's like, when you listen to the show, it's like a real time decline of a friendship. <laughs> you can hear the tension, you can hear the oh chaos. Everyone was so invested in us as friends and you right. know, your friendship's the best. And everyone's like, this is my ideal friendship. And then by the end of the podcast, we're like, yeah, we're not friends anymore. And we're still not friends. So, um, yeah, and there's a lot of healing that has to come after something like that, because, you know, your, your friends are your secret holders. They're the people you tell everything to like your, your close friends are very meaningful relationships. So you have to heal from those as well before you can open yourself up to a new friendship. Right. Yeah. And and also not make others pay for the sins of the one. Right. Yes, exactly. Same as in dating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) wow jordan we've talked about so many different things today in this episode and i i so appreciate your time um yeah there's one thing i always ask people so i want to ask you oh i should have got the question there's (laughs) it's funny i go on a lot of podcasts and they're like this is our question and it's like you you want it so you can prepare i don't know your question hit me that exactly i don't want you to prepare <laughs> so um i always ask so let's say you're walking down the street and someone stops you and they say hey jordan what is your best life advice 
what would you say to them? And this is just like in the moment right now, this is the life advice that you would give. We won't put this on record as your all time life advice. How about that? Um, uh, My life advice is uh, develop a sense of urgency uh, that um, live your life exactly the way that when you're lying on your deathbed and palliative care, I mean, we're not all going to die like that, but assume that's how you go. Uh, that you can look back on your life and know that you lived for you, that you've quieted the noise of the media and the social norms and that you lived your one life uh, exactly how you wanted to do it. And so my advice is just live for you, live for what makes you happy and uh, develop a level of stoicism and quiet the noise and just think of just always think of that i always think of that moment i mean it's kind of morbid but i always think of that moment uh of my grandpa actually in palliative care i just i even remember the room i remember what it like the window i remember everything it looks like and i just remember having that moment i'm like when i get there i need to know that it was exactly it's never going to be exactly, but it was as close to what I my I wanted for myself in my dream life. Mm-hmm. And I remind myself of that every day. So when I'm doing something, I always think, will it matter on my deathbed? Uh, will it make me smile on my deathbed? Will it fill me with regrets? And I have motivated a lot of people in my life by saying that line to them because people get out of jobs, they they go after their dreams. I mean, I think the pandemic, even the silver lining of this is that it develops, when you confront your own mortality, you develop a sense of urgency and you realize that you're not going to live forever. Um, yeah. And so I think that's been my, that's my biggest advice is just think of the deathbed. And I do this yeah. morbid thing that only works for certain people. I talked to it on my podcast and like half the people are like, it's an amazing idea. And half the people are like, that's morbid, but I go on when I'm feeling kind of like sorry for myself or whatever, I go on um, forums of cancer patients who are stage four and you read about what they value and how they're spending their last 12 months or six months. And it gives you such a raw perspective on what matters, um, what you sweat about that really won't matter in five years, the the many, the the things of how they view relationships, how they, things they'd wish they'd done, the regrets of the dying, the things they did right. And I read those for, you know, about an hour. And it, for me, it just, it resets me to that moment that I talked about. Um, and I've had people do it and say it really gave them fresh perspective. Um, so that would be my advice. It might not work for whoever's listening, but I've tried it and it's worked for a lot of people. I love it personally. <laughs> I have a quote. I mean, I, I have so many quotes everywhere, but one of them is remember death because I think we owe that to ourselves as humans to remember our mortality and to live our lives with that sense of urgency So I support it. And I think it's very creative, the idea of going to a forum. So if you try that out, DM Jordan or myself on Instagram and tell us how it goes. I don't want someone to be like, yo, my God, you put me in a spiral. Yeah, only if it works, DM us. (laughs) It's a a personality specific thing, right? Like I've I've heard before. But if you can do it, I, I I find it healing, which for some people are like, what do you mean? It's so dark. It's so bleak. I'm like, no, it's actually like freeing. It's, it's healing. Perfect. I think it's um, it will help your perspective, right? To zone in on what really matters. I love it. Yeah. 
Jordan, before we let you go, I meant to actually do this earlier too, but can you tell everyone how to get in touch with you and um, just anything that they need to know about you and all the amazing things you're doing? So yeah, on my social is, I only really have Twitter and Instagram, but at jpowercomedy, if you want to buy my book, you can get it paperback, ebook, ebook anywhere, paperbacks on Amazon. It's called Famous Anus, has incredible reviews. I'm just saying. Um, it's actually a great book if you're like, uh, had a breakup or a death, or you're just sort of like need that co- comedian to come in and just thumb their nose at social conventions and make you laugh. There's a story in there about me having surgery on my anus, which is a true story. Um, and like an anal fissure. So that's my book. And then my podcast, if you're listening to this, uh, I don't know when it comes out, but my podcast starts November 13th. Uh, it's called unmentionable. It'll be on YouTube and all players. Um, and it's going to kind of be a fun show that'll make you think, but, um, I am interested in like the seedy underbelly of society. I always have been like people that don't normally get a lot of light in the media. So like I'm going to have on guests like escape the cult. Um, I'm having on a straight guy who does gay porn. I'm having on a couple of the strippers in Toronto who can't work now because of COVID and Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. The people who don't traditionally have voices um, or or are stigmatized in some way. I've always kind of interested me. Uh, So that's the show I want to do. It's just going to be a, it's going to be a fun comedy show. Um, But then a little bit of like Rogan, you know, where you're, you do these long form interviews and you're thinking and you're growing as a person. I love that balance. I've always tried to strike that. So check it out. Awesome. I'm so excited. I can't wait to listen to it personally. And Jordan, thank you for your time today. I know everyone here really appreciated what you had to say and keep doing what you're doing. I love your voice. I love how you're helping so many people. Um, yeah, you're, you're amazing. Thank you. You're amazing. (laughs) It's like, oh, shucks. No, you. Yeah. All okay. right, Jordan. Well, thank you so much. And everyone listening, as always, you know, I'm wishing you high self-worth and great relationships. We'll talk with you soon. You guys, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate each and every one of you. The best way that you can thank me is by sharing this episode on Instagram, Facebook, and making sure that you tag me at Dr. Morgan Coaching. And it would really mean the world to me if you took just two minutes to leave me a five-star review on iTunes. This podcast is not free to produce. And the more that you help this little show grow, the more people will have access to this valuable information. So until next time, I'm wishing you high self-worth and great relationships. Thank you for being part of this community.